Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's guest is trumpet player Mike Lowe. Mike plays for two DC-based bands, Skyscrapers, and he also plays for the monumental Brass Quintet. As far as Skyscrapers, when Mike's band started playing their first gigs and really getting their sound together as indie jam rock, unfortunately, COVID hit, and the band had to take a forced hiatus from the stage. But as you'll hear Mike say today, they're getting ready for a return to the U Street bars in Washington, D.C., and they also have a lot of music available online, and the links to those sources will be posted in today's show notes. For today's episode, Mike picked a really big monster jam. He chose Fluffhead from July 24th, 1999 at Alpine Valley. Indeed, this version of Fluffhead is unlike any other that the band has ever played before or since. It's stretched for over 32 minutes with a Type 2 jam that is almost entirely led by Mike's bass. The band has yet to play a version that displays an equal amount of musical creativity compared to this one. Toward the end of our discussion, the only parallel that I could think of would be The Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy, in terms of having a song that, for as enjoyable as it may be, the audience pretty much knows what to expect each time. In both The Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy and this version of Fluffhead, all those expectations went right out the window and went above and beyond anybody's expectations. Mike chose it because he describes how fans had their jaws dropped to the floor after it was played. More than that, it was only the second song of the whole show. So there's a lot to unpack in this Fluffhead. So let's join Mike to talk about his band Skyscrapers, Fish's Sound in 1998, and Fluffhead from July 24th, 1999 at Alpine Valley. Let's meet today's guest. Mike, welcome to Attendance Bias. Thanks for being here. Oh, no problem. It's great to be here. It's good to have you. I am very excited to talk about today's Fluffhead uh, from July 24th, 1999 at Alpine Valley for a number of reasons. First off, it's a great jam before anything else. Second, when I was first getting into Fish, this was the stuff of legend. It was soon after I got into the band and I heard all about it. It was in the Farmer's Almanac. I read up on it. People who were there would tell me about it. But at the time, it was so hard to track down tapes and recordings from 1999. So this one has passed me by. And now you just helped me check this one off my list. So thank you from fan to fan. Awesome. No, that, that really makes me happy. You're from Virginia. And before we get to the fish part, you are in a band called Skyscraper. Tell us a little bit about Skyscraper. Yeah, Skyscrapers is a band. Um, it's kind of funny. It's a band that was sort of, uh, it sort of happened via Twitter. And uh, my friend Jimmy uh, Timber Carini on Twitter um, had been living in um, in California um, and was relocating to the East Coast. And we'd sort of been talking about, hey, we should start a band sometime. He had been in a Talking Heads cover band out there. Um, and it took a little while, uh, but sure enough, we did start a band in D.C. Um, and Matt Dwyer, Marilyn Funk on Twitter, um, also plays guitar in the band um, and works for Osiris and that kind of thing, too. Uh, and we also have a drummer, uh, keyboard. And who am I forgot? Oh, bass, of course, and myself. <laughs> bass player is always getting forgotten. <laughs> yeah. So originally the you know, the concept was to have sort of a mini horn section. Um, and for our first few rehearsals, we had a trombone player and myself sort of playing off each other. But over over the last couple of years, it's basically just been me. And maybe at some point we add another horn player. Um, I think it would be it's it's fun, but either way, I'm sort of bouncing ideas off of Jimmy, who's playing lead guitar. And we you know, he does a lot of the writing. We we probably 
you know, rehearsed for like two years before we actually played a gig. And we were just starting to get going, um, you know, in early 2019 and played a few shows in D.C. down on U Street. And we're just, you know, people were there was a little bit of buzz um, and we were being asked back to play again. And um, and then everything, you know, the the plug got pulled. But um, we've got about eight to ten originals. And I would say, you know, the easiest way to describe our sound is probably a combination of the national meets the war on drugs meets a little bit of talking heads and TV on the radio. Um, and so it's sort of like an indie jam in a way, but we do actually play structured songs. You know, I think at, at points lyrics are important and at other times they're not. So, you know, a lot of our covers are talking heads and um, we do Golden Age, for example, and Life During Wartime. We just played Cities actually uh, just Saturday. That's sort of like the a nutshell, like sort of what the influences are in the band. And we do like to sort of keep it open. We like to to sort of drop down into Lydian or like down a minor third and, and, and jam like Fish does basically, for example, in Golden Age and, and in this Fluffhead, to be honest, there's a point where they do finally modulate and I think and change key. So uh, we're looking forward to sort of getting back out and playing again. This was our only show um, this past weekend until probably the fall where we'll hopefully be back in the, in the club scene and, you know, continue the progress and upward trajectory of the band. Well, you mentioned that you're in kind of the D.C. area. What are some possible venues that people might see you? So I'd look for us at the Black Cat. I'd look for us at Union Stage, um, uh, the Velvet Lounge, which is the place we played uh, a couple times now on U Street. Hopefully bigger stages after that. But I think I would I would say that, you know, some more of the uh, smaller stages, especially um, like I said, Union Stage, for example, is one we're definitely interested in. The Black Cat would be one that uh, is sort of a dream for, for all of us. It's like one of the big four in D.C., I would say, between Meriwether, 930, uh, The Anthem, and Black Cat. We're at Skyscrapers DC um, on Twitter. Attendance bias lightning round. All right, Mike, let's get to know you a little bit as a fan with the attendance bias lightning round. Cool. So first up, Mike, when was your first fish show? Uh, my first fish show was August 8th, 1997 at the uh, the World Amphitheater, otherwise known as Tinley Park um, in Chicago. It was a great, no, not a great show. I've been told by other friends it was probably the weakest show of the summer tour. <laughs> um, but for me personally, uh, it was... Uh, one of the first moments that really pulled me into the band was right off the bat in that show. They played a gumbo into lizards early in the first set. That sounds good uh, to me. Yeah. And the gumbo was a, a 17, 18 minute variety. So it's, and, and then, um, you know, also an excellent Wolfman's brother to, to open the first, uh, the second set. I think it went into free possibly. And then they had a harmonica player, sugar blue come out and do encores uh, messing with the kid. And, Oh, I can't remember. Hoochie, Hoochie Coochie man. I think. Oh, beautiful. I remember reading those notes, those J card notes. I just yeah. couldn't recall it right away. But, um, Timley Park, as bad a venue as I've heard, or the yeah. sound at least. It's it's overall, it's it's probably in the top three of the worst venues I've ever been to. <laughs> um, from the parking lot, which is, you know, just chaotic. And I just remember it being really hot that day too. It was in August. Yeah, no, the sound is terrible. The stage itself doesn't really deliver. Fortunately, I remember being pretty center, not in the pavilion, but close to the edge of it. So it didn't bother me too much, but compared to the other venues I'd been to looking back, it was terrible. What was your most recent fish show? Uh, my last fish show was December 30th, uh, 2019 at MSG. All things considered, what's your favorite song? Ooh, 
man, this is such a hard question for me. I think probably my favorite song, it's some, you know, it's probably Bathtub Gin, to be honest. It's the song that for me as a trumpet player is the easiest to play along with. Um, it has a really cool melody. And then it's uh, it's a song that I played with other musicians sort of, you know, going back to my time at Northwestern, we would we would have jam sessions on the rocks on Lake Michigan. Andrew Hitz was included in that. Oh, fun. And, and you know, f- frequently that that song would be played. I also played it at my wedding, <laughs> so uh, which was um, in May of 2004, about a week after they announced that they were uh, taking a break. So it, it, it sort of has a lot of sentimental value. I'm a huge fan of Tweezer. It's really hard for me not to say that, but um, my heart probably says Bathtub Gin. We just talked about Tim Lee Park as being a bottom three venue. What's your top venue? Man, um, I would probably say Hampton um, or or Madison Square Garden. Um, those are the two venues that I've seen the most shows, as also as it turns out, uh, as well as Meriwether. It's really interesting to hear what they've done with the um, the renovations at Meriwether. I think the sound in there really pops now. It's it's just a whole nother feel inside the pavilion. Are you chasing any songs? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you could if you could push a button and see a show tomorrow and see any song you want, what's the number one that you're chasing then? Peaches and Regalia. Any songs that are chasing you? You know, there was a period in time in the uh, 99, 2000, where I feel like I was seeing rock and roll every show. And at one point, I remember looking at my stats and I was like in the 50-50 club, like had seen 50% of them at that point. It it only played like 15 or 16 of them, but that was the point where I was like, golly, they're just playing this thing (laughs) every time I'm here. Um, That sort of faded and, you know, I don't know if I've got the same... I can't think of another song that's sort of in, in sync with like that, you know, but that was a period where it was like, geez, here we go. <laughs> Do you have a favorite year of fish? Probably. Uh, yeah. That's, it's also such a hard question. I think overall it probably is 98. I feel like it's a great blend of what they were doing in 97 and it's sort of a precursor to what sort of happened in 99 um, where 98, they were adding more ambient and space to it but the playing itself was very very clean and tight um, and there was no you know back there was back in those days I remember never having a thought about oh is you know is Trey gonna miss a note here or something like that you know it was it was just a different you know experience I think at the show um, but uh, you know 98 99 is probably my guess I love 97 I love you know, of course, summer and, and fall of 95. I had that thought today about 98. You mentioned that it's possibly your favorite year. I think that 1998 is, it's got something for everybody. No right. matter what you like about fish, it's somewhere in there. Whether like you said, it's uh, like a little bit of ambience, but it's not too much of it. Like you might find in 2000, for example, uh, yeah. there's there's weird covers, especially yeah, well, in ever- the summer. That's right. The summer of covers, right. it's like every show there was something. Uh, and then I feel like it's probably my favorite Halloween in terms of how the band was actually playing that velvet underground. And I was also just getting into the velvet underground, which is sort of why it's funny that rock and roll ended up following me around. I just discovered that album that year. Um, so then to see fish in 1990, 2000 and being and hearing that song, what felt like every show was a little weird. <laughs> Final question of the lightning round. What is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? 
I was getting a bouquet given to me at New Year's '98 from one of the nymph dancers. Oh, that's fun uh, for we, anyone for anyone who's not listening. There's not at least I haven't found a lot of video footage of this or even photographs. '98 didn't even really have a gag like a New Year's gag. No, right? the the closest is that they opened. New Year's with 1999 by Prince, but they didn't have a build up at midnight. I went to the first three shows of that run, the 28th, 29th, and 30th. I could not get New Year's tickets. Yep. But uh, throughout the first three nights, they had like fairy dancers. They had worms, I believe, (laughs) like people dressed as giant worms kind of gyrating around the stage on different nights. My impression was that it was, since it was Madison Square Garden, that it was a garden. You know, almost right. like almost like a Midsummer Night's Dream or like this garden of pleasantries where there are strange, uh, perhaps fantastical and characters and elements right. in it. But it didn't build to anything. But right. you got a bouquet of flowers from one yeah. of them. It was weird. Now, we um, I think just to jog your memory, I, re- I recall that um, that was the time like where the floor at the garden was full of chairs um, and it was not open, you know, and there wasn't the back row, you know bleachers that there are today behind the soundboard and all that um, and I remember sitting in basically a center front row between the aisle at the aisle and so we were right in front of where that action was happening in the middle of the room and yeah one of them one of them on stilts handed me one of these weird <laughs> white bouquets of, of something or other and uh, it was a it was <laughs> it was I was into the music and then all of a sudden it's like whoa what is this <laughs> When was this show played? Let's get into the context of this fluffhead from July 24th, 1999 at Alpine Valley. It was played toward the end of the 99 summer tour. It was about a week, a little less than a week after Oswego. Uh, This show was a single night at Alpine before two nights at Deer Creek to close the whole tour. Uh, I've never been to Alpine Valley Mm. ever. And I've heard a billion stories about it. It's It lives in my mind's eye, for sure. Uh, what is your impression of the venue being from the Midwest? So this was actually my first uh, show at Alpine Valley. My impression of it, the only thing I remember is it was incredibly hot this day. And it was like 100 plus degrees in the venue. And so water was like the number one premium. But uh, the, what I remember about it is a giant lawn, a hill on the top of the lawn, um, a ski lift behind the stage off in the distance, and a giant tree <laughs> in the middle, <laughs> sort of halfway up the lawn um, that, you know, people would climb at times. And it was just, it was part of the lawn, more or less. But um, the main thing is, I sort of remember it, it's all like a funnel. And so everybody gets pushed down close to the pavilion. So it's really tight on the lawn, for example, you're, you're shoulder to shoulder. At the time, I don't think that, uh, you know, security was quite as intense up there as it's, as it's become. From what I'm hearing in 3.0, it's uh, not nearly as, um, sort of relaxed and open, especially getting into the show. But um, I remember Mike was wearing a bright green lime shirt this night. Of course um, he was. Yeah. So to be honest, it sounded the band, you know, you know, listening to the whole show, this is one of the weirdest um, overall shows I've probably ever been to outside of uh, uh, 73003. It's sort of in that category for me of just strangeness um, in terms of the playing. And Summer 99 has been a very popular tour for guests on attendance bias to choose. 
That surprised me. Before starting this podcast, I didn't know much about this tour at all. I didn't see any shows from it. But I think by this point, I think I've said everything I can possibly say about (laughs) Summer 99. So I want to ask your impressions of it. How many shows did you see on this tour? Um, I I saw 12 and I saw shows. I saw shows starting in Charlotte and did Charlotte, Virginia Beach, Merriweather, Camden, Great Woods, took a break and then went out to the Midwest for Alpine and Deer Creek. You know, for me, this was like um, my first tour in a lot of ways. My first as, as you know, I did 98, you know, in the winter time. I did the UIC run in 98 being in Chicago and then MSG. But this was my first summer tour, like doing multiple shows and being on the road. So that that part of it, it was also part of my experience. And um, how old are you at this time? So I had just graduated from college. Uh, so I was like 22, 23. So the, uh, we graduated, I graduated summer in 95. Um, and, you know, another side note about this show is that they played alumni blues as the encore um, a month after my graduation. So Perfect. <laughs> they knew you were like there. A, yeah, it seemed like a really fitting, fitting end to the show. But, you know, overall, I just felt like um, the, 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 the band had a different sound. You know, looking back now, it's because of the sick of disc um, and that sort of inf- not infected, but was sort of involved in all of the jams they were doing. And um, my left toe was sort of a big part of that. And it sort of happened from the beginning from when I saw shows in Charlotte, they did a big my left toe in a giant 2001 where there's just a lot of space in the sound, maybe not a lot of lead from from Trey and, and you know he had the um I believe he also had the side keyboard going on at that time that was sort of his little you know side party from the yeah. mini kit and that carried over into the fall tour and yeah. became a lot more pronounced it really did it really did and, and that you know they got more droney as it went yeah. along and you know you had songs like got a jaboo and sand start to enter the mix and second sets um it in a way for me it seemed as a musician, it seemed like these are perfect songs for them right now. They don't even need to practice these because I remember hearing about the rule in 98 about the no practice. You yeah. Know? I think they took that to heart. Yeah. I really do. I do. I do. Yeah. And so some of this just sort of lets it, you know, Mike doesn't get to, you know, he's sort of, you know, playing the Tony bass lines, um, repetitive, yeah. groove, minimalist. Uh, style but it's gonna uh, have its benefits but also its drawbacks luckily in this jam that you picked today it's got its benefits but this song that we chose that you chose fluffhead this was the second song of the show right. after gaiute opens it right I mean, aside from hampton in 2009 of fluffhead opening the show famously yep this was inc- extremely uncharacteristic for Fluffhead to be played at all. I think it was played seven times or something like that in, right. in 1999 to come right as the two hitter. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's mind blowing. I can't imagine what the crowd reaction was so early in the show. Do you have any memory of it or was it too long ago? I, I just remember people just sort of being electric, you know, this, you know, instant cheering, you know, the Gaiuti opener was sort of more of a ho-hum, you know, <laughs> here we go. It's more of the farmhouse stuff. And for me personally, I had just, gotten my first fluffhead in Camden on the 10th and for that was a really good one that Trey had a really hard time ending in a way it just kept building and building and building um so when they started the fluffhead again I just I my jaw hit the floor I just couldn't believe I was hearing this again and I think we talked about but right off the jump it's different you know you can tell yeah. something something is brewing basically because of the extended intro and waiting to come in i think it's an extra eight bars that they add Um, yeah 
Yeah, we'll get into it in a yeah, second. Yeah, I know sure this right so. away. I do just want to say before we get into Fluffhead itself, for anyone listening that you haven't heard of or heard this show, July 24th, 99, the first thing that I saw uh, when when Mike gave me this date is that when you look at it on either fish.net or fishin, fish.in, this show has a five-song first set and a four-song second set so and a four-song encore. So weird. <laughs> it, it looks like a random set list generator that ran out of time. Isn't yeah. it? It's it's unbelievable. So before we get into the song itself, let me ask you, why did you pick it? I just felt like this was, you know, so unique. Uh, it's I can't think of another time in their history where they've done an extended sort of type two jam on, on Fluffhead. You know, the other thing was it was sort of as listening back, I just hearing lots of other connections to 99 and Big Cypress, which was sort of coming up in the jam itself you know some some sort of foreshadowing of where the band was heading <laughs> so as as you mentioned right away you could notice there's something different about this one yep i listened to this jam for the first time as i do when i walk my dog and i noticed by 1 minute i think it was something is different already like they don't come in at the usual time like you mentioned before you right. said that they they play they vamp for about eight extra times before trey comes in or everyone comes in with the lyrics i counted it it's about 40 seconds more than usual yeah. which you know in in day-to-day timing, that's not a lot, 40 seconds. But when you're waiting, like when you're at a fish show, 40 Wait. seconds could be the world. You know, and you could hear the whole crowd start singing, yep. expecting, you know, to sing along with the band, but the band doesn't join in when they do. like they created accidental tension you know in a mm-hmm. way. you know i was noticing too i don't know if this had anything to do with it whatsoever but when mike first came in he sort of flubbed it um, oh really i didn't notice yeah, it, his first entrance was a little bit weird and i almost feel like trey was giving him a chance to sort of get you know centered again and and straight i'm not really sure this is just a guess but um i just listened to it again this afternoon and it was just like oh it's not sort of a clean sort of entrance from mike um and and i'm not sure if that sort of 
fed the direction that they were, you know, thinking about and playing um, at that point. But anyway, he, as, as we'll talk about, he's, he's sort of prominently featured and it seems to be driving the whole jam. Uh, yeah. Yeah. From, from section to section that doesn't let up. Nope. And so for most of the track, at least for most of the song, I thought this is a pretty typical fluffhead as, yep. as we know it, some extra energy perhaps, but I think anyone could say that about any version that yes. they're listening to for any yeah. given reason. It is fluffhead after all. Right. But around 13 and a half or maybe 14 minutes, there's some really extra energy when they come back in to the chorus, when they, you know, fluff, hey, uh, Trey keeps his sustain of his vocals on. He just sings right through. Yep. He doesn't stop. And it's a small detail. It's something that, you know, not everyone might notice or that you could easily pass you by. But you could tell that they're on a mission. Like he has a purpose. Like he yeah. has some real hard energy going there. Uh, this the guitar solo I wrote down was more solo, uh, more soulful than usual, and I was inspired. You know, it broke free. You could almost picture it breaking free from a mold. Right, right. Yeah. No, I had notes about you know thirteen twenty is when they have a big mm -hmm. arrival, a huge peak, and then about thirteen thirty five or so, Trey is just soaring. Um, on his solo and um, listening back, it almost sounds like Tila at times, like what he's playing and, and there's a lot of notes happening and yeah, you sort of kept um, this a sustain on as well. Um, and it just keeps going, you know, 14 minutes and then 15, it's like another arrival. And I start to hear some weird, I don't know if you, you heard this too, about 15 minutes, just right after that, I hear Mike does a little, uh, a chromatic half step drop in the bass line. Yeah, I wrote, um, uh, I wrote, you could hear the beginnings of the improv jam right. from Mike's incredible bass runs. Yeah, so it's, it's like starts, he hits this little descending lead and he goes down a half a step and then he starts this whole upbeat, like synco bass into the next arrival, the boop, 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 boop. Like playing on the upbeat and it and then it syncs up with them hitting the next which i have is the final sort of well there's maybe two more like this is the thing about this they kept arriving <laughs> <laughs> 
there were like four or five like actual arrival points. This was one they just kept going, you know, and I sort of, you know, what I said about uh, Mike is that he plays the exact same baseline at like 16, 14. I've got like 16, you know, 24 is when the actual sort of type two jam starts. Yeah, this is, I wrote, yeah, around the same time that this is where everything changes. Oh, totally. It's unlike any other Fluffhead that I've ever heard, or as far as I know that they've ever played before. There's like a 1999 drone guitar, but it, upon re-listens, it's not even a drone. Trey just kind of takes a step back and he's not as audible as he normally is. And Mike is really keeping the melody moving forward. I even heard flavors of Sunshine of Your Love by Cream, even though it doesn't really sound like that. There's kind of a a mold of it or there's like a flavor of it. The groups down basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I even put down here like um, so they have this pattern like, and they sort of enter this I think around eighteen minutes. Fish has a tendency to do do like a four or an eight bar phrase like in the jam, so you can hear them. You can count to four four times basically. Do this with the Nassau Roses are free, for example. It's really clear in that. But they started happening. That pattern sort of emerged in this fluffhead too, and it almost sounded at a for a moment it was like a slow psycho killer from trey um you know the, you hear all kinds of teases you know <laughs> all the time from this band but um but yeah i totally agree it was like he backs up and i feel like he starts to stress a lot more the enharmonics on the guitar like to the higher um twinkly notes and he's not really playing in the low end and then he's sort of there's all these loops going on this is something that sort of disappeared um, from his playing now, you know, that was really present then, the the loops and all of that sort of atmosphere he created to to play inside. And I agree with you. Around 18 minutes, Mike really becomes the go-to guy totally. that he will remain for the rest of this jam. And a minute later, around 20 minutes, there's the space funk that's very similar to their bread and butter on Winter 99. But yeah. things got a little bit more weird and out there. So. At 20 minutes, uh, on my note, I wrote Boise Bang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like yeah. that, and it, there's a lot of sort of similarities in the sound to what was then going to be happening in that jam later in the fall. You know, um, um, there's just starts to be some convergence. Like uh, for me, the big ones in '99 were the Camden Chalk Dust, the Virginia Beach Free, and and then the Big Cypress Split Up and a Melt sort of had a lot of this similar sort of sound happening from the band where it's all headed in one direction you know it's all straightforward and driving at times but 
also nebulous and spacey and weird, you know, which is fun um, because just a couple days later, uh, earlier, I'm sorry, a week earlier at Oswego, they're playing at supersonic speeds on Piper, <laughs> which is just like straight ahead, insane guitar rock. Right, and now right. you're on a completely different galaxy. Totally different thing. Yeah, no, it, yeah, exactly. And I think we had mentioned this sort of off, off of the, off mic, but um, my ears for this whole jam, I really wasn't, um, connected to what Paige was doing much. You know, he, I, I was hearing sort of Mike being dominant, um, Trey playing and Fishman sort of playing off of him and being pretty active, but, and it might just be the miking situation. It might be the odds of the summer. I think it is. I think Paige yeah. gets lost in the mix in a lot of these shows, a lot of these recordings, you know, you mentioned Alpine Valley as a very small, uh, a very small, pavilion but yeah but but a very wide kind of venue overall yeah you know i had the same experience at darien lake in 2000 Mm -hmm. where it's very washy the sound can become very washy very quickly and then when you add microphones to it that it's not just straight noise or straight sound from the speakers to your ears there's so much that gets lost in between it this was a hard time to get a good recording yeah so i mean and you know i mentioned Paige because i was you know, I did become very aware of him about 21 minutes plus when he starts to get involved. Paige and Trey are both sort of jumping. I think Paige jumps on um, claps. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so I wrote that too. Starts pounding away. And, and all of a sudden it sounds like sand, like they're playing a sand jam for, you know, sort of the Cypress tiles. Is That's what was in my head. It was just sort of this very similar. Again, we're now in another sort of flavor of our, our new style, basically. then you know it's sort of i wrote finally page you know? <laughs> uh, and you know and then the um you know the final build of the last four minutes i think page sort of ignites that you know about eight minutes out um yeah i wrote that it's impossible to remember that this is from fluffhead no now, you, by this time we're completely in a different house a different galaxy whatever you want to call it yep. we are no longer with fluffhead if there's a carrot that says fluffhead segue jam this is jam yep. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, we have exited. Fluffhead has left the building. Right. And if I was like, if like 20 minutes to 24 minutes is more of like the, you know, the, the fall sort of 99 sound that's coming up 24 minutes, that turns into sand and more chunky funk. And even a little bit of ghost, I think, is sort of implied in some of that. It's just complete, you know, four minutes later, we're in another we're in another universe, basically. Yeah. I mean, our Fluffhead is a lot of things, but it's not groovy. No, <laughs> but this is groovy. This is yes. super groovy. Yeah, this sure. is, I wrote down not on my notes, but just in my head, proto Plinko. 
Yeah. And I want to put that on a shirt. I might get a tattoo that just says Proto Plinko $724.99. I like I like that idea a lot. Uh, but Trey, you know, he gets dissonant, he kind of takes a back seat. melody to be spoken of or to be heard mike has to has the call to step up you know it's it's kind of on him to do it and he sure answers that call it sounds like the winter tour and big cypress are written all over this jam or vice versa but i think it's really interesting what you say about him taking a back seat at times and allowing for mike for example to step up and fill that space you know and um i remember some of the some of my friends at the time were weren't necessarily thrilled that you know, he's not playing enough leads, for example. He's playing sort of more rhythm guitar and in the background. It's like, well, it's sort of a democracy at the same time. You know, you're allowing someone else to come up more and sort of inspire the the action at that moment. You know, I have to say, I've never heard anyone or even a story of anyone complaining about Fish in that trade doesn't play enough leads. <laughs> That's <laughs> the only time I've ever heard that one. That that was um I think that can also come back up in like earlier 3.0. I think when they're trying to find their sound again, I think yeah. there was there's maybe a little bit more of the truth to that uh, at that time. But yeah, no, I agree with you. <laughs> and at around 30 minutes, the last couple of minutes, it kind of settles in into what I heard as Boogie on Reggae Woman, at um, least from Fishman yeah, on yeah, the yeah. drum beat, like very uh tight, hi-hat, uh syncopated hi-hat right. and snare drum beats. And oh, then it yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, and then it just beautifully fades out and fades in. It's like a, it's like a beautiful crossfade. If you were mastering an audio file yeah. from, from f- this weird groove, I, I hesitate to even call it Fluffhead into the man who stepped into yesterday. It perfect. couldn't have been done better. It was a perfect landing spot um, in terms of just juxtaposing those two ideas together and overlapping them. Yeah. As you said, and it's interesting. You say book and regular women, um, that last little sort of section of the jam, like 24 minutes out when Paige sort of exerts himself a little bit more. So does Fishman. He changes the beat right there and immediately is much more up on the hi hat, um, and sort of up on top, you know, on the upbeat of the beat sort of changes. And that definitely sort of is a boogie on regular woman type of a, a groove for sure. So I, yeah, totally agree on that. Um, I remember just when they, when they did finally get into the man, it just felt like this huge exhale from the crowd. The closest analogy or the closest, I guess, parallel that I could think of for this track would be the Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy. You know, this time it would be, is it still Fluffhead? Right. Where yeah, yeah. It's this song that is, as you mentioned, very well composed. You kind of know what you're getting. It's great. You have no uh, no complaints about it, but you know what you're getting. You know yeah. what to expect. And then they blow that wide open. And totally. just like the Baker's Dozen Lawn Boy, this lasts a half hour. Yeah. 
Yes, that's a really cool parallel. I hadn't thought about that one, but that's totally right. Um, in that sort of, you know, one of these classic moments, it's just, you know, getting the unexpected, you know, happening at a show. Um, when you're, you know, you're, you're, you're definitely expecting one thing and then they totally flip it upside down on you, basically. So, Mike Lowe, thanks so much for being here on Attendance Bias today. Before we check out, uh, remind us again of your band, where we could find you, uh, where we could hope to see you sooner than later. Fingers cool. crossed. My band is Skyscrapers DC. Uh, look for us um, in the fall. We will be back. We're writing new music this summer. Um, we'll be back at it. Look for us at hopefully the Black Cat um, and uh, and other clubs around U Street. Um, I also play in a brass quintet called Monumental Brass, and we do all your more legit style music as well. So, um, yeah, it was a pleasure being on. Thanks again, Ryan. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Mike Lowe for joining me today to talk about that unbelievable version of Fluffhead. I'd also like to thank Fish.net for everything they do and Fishin, Fish.in, for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app. Also, find Attendance Bias on social media, reach out, and I'll send you a free sticker. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.